Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines with Bill Reel. And what we're doing tonight is part two of an episode in which we discuss a recent interview with Steve Harper, a member of the Church Historian's Office, where he was interviewed for a broadcast that was published on the church website. It's on mormonchannel.com, or is it .org? I'm not sure. But anyway, it can be found on the lds.org website. This was released recently. It's about a 25-minute interview, and we thought that it was so interesting, both the things that Stephen Harper was saying, as well as the things he was not saying, that Bill Reel and I decided we wanted to take a crack at this and talk about this interview. So we already did part one. And when we left at the end of part one, the question had been asked to Stephen Harper, where do you go and what resources do you go to when you have a question about church history? And the thing we commented on and that we actually played at the end of part one was the fact that Stephen Harper studiously avoided answering that question. Instead, he talked about himself as having difficulty with church history. It involved one of the Hoffman letters back in 1985 when Stephen Harper was a teenager. And then he went to John Widstow, who was a scientist and an apostle of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the early 20th century, and talked about how Elder Widstow also had difficulties when he was in college and challenges to his testimony. But nevertheless, he remained faithful. So instead of answering the question of where do we go when we have questions about church history, I mean, you are a member of the church historian's office, you are the guy who should know, he completely elides the question. And instead of answering it, talks about people who have had their doubts, but stayed faithful anyway, which I think really is the prime thrust of this entire interview, not to provide answers, but to say, stay in the boat. Yeah, certainly seems like that's the case. I find it, I just want to note to the listeners, and again, I'm glad to be back on this and and kind of wrapping up talking about these last uh, several sound bites. But it seems like Stephen Harper starts out the episode saying, look, I've had a formative experience with the Holy Ghost. Uh, I've had God bear witness to me of the truthfulness of these things. And if, and then he goes right to, if you have questions and you stay with it, you have faith, God is going to give you answers. And then shortly thereafter, he moves to a place where he says, look, I've, I've got some questions too. Um, and then he moves into a space where he says, I've got several questions and several answers. So it seems like it's 50-50. And then where we leave off, he says, uh, I've got some questions answered, but I have a whole lot of questions that are not answered. And as we're going to find as we move into the second half of the interview, by the time it's all done, he tells you essentially he doesn't believe any of it literally uh, and uses a really cool analogy to say that. It feels as if he is moving, like he starts off the interview wanting to be this really faithful voice, but by the end of the interview, he's essentially admitted the whole thing's a mess. Um, I find that interesting coming from a member of the church historian's office and with the recognition, as you point out, that he should be an expert voice on church history, but you can tell throughout the interview, he is doing everything he can to avoid talking about church, church history or to make church history a benefit to faith within the LDS narrative. 
Yes, and there has been this template put up within the church that church history is good to know, the correlated church history, you need to know that backward and forward, and frankly, most Mormons do from an early age because it's repeated all the time. But then there's this danger zone in church history that if you go beyond the correlated version, then you're going to start running into troubles and you're going to start having doubts because you're going to run into information that is going to challenge your testimony. But part of the template that is currently in effect, and you've heard it and I've heard it too in general conference and in other places, is that if you get past the danger zone and you study even more church history, you study it deeply. You go beyond the danger zone and you actually come to this place of nirvana where suddenly everything makes sense and all your doubts that you had because you studied a little when you study a lot are going to be resolved. And that's what I get the impression this interviewer is thinking about Stephen Harper. He is a church historian. He knows this inside and out. He has gone beyond the danger zone. He has reached the nirvana point. Everything makes sense to him. This has strengthened his testimony. And she keeps asking him questions with that assumption in mind. And he keeps sort of dodging the question because he knows that what she thinks about him is not true. And he goes, uh, let me just back up and say, I want to give credit to Stephen Harper because I don't think I've ever seen an official with the church or a member of the church historian's office be as candid as he is being in this interview. You're right. He starts off one way, trying to put on the face, but very quickly, the real Stephen Harper comes to the fore. And by this point, halfway through the interview and through the rest of the interview, he is going to be as candid as he possibly can without actually coming out and saying that all the miracle stories that are told in church related to church history did not happen. Let's go to the first audio segment of the second half of the interview with Stephen Harper. Roll the tape. So I think that's a good thing to point out, to not not feel badly if you are questioning and if you're you're having questions. It's it's a good thing. Yeah, that whole idea that that you should be afraid of your questions or or that questions are bad, that is cultural. That is not scriptural. If you lack wisdom, ask God, where would we be? if we didn't ask questions, if we didn't worry about the state of our souls or the truthfulness of the things we've been taught. Uh, everybody that I admire who's come before the, in, a, in the Restoration, starting with Joseph Smith, has asked questions, has had doubts and concerns and worries and fears. I don't, there's nothing wrong with that, and the church is teaching that clearly. Yeah. So it's not even a church teaching that you shouldn't ask. It's just a kind of a cultural expectation that has developed. Okay, stop the tape. Stop the tape. (laughs) I cannot. Okay, first off, let's give him credit for at least mouthing the platitude that questions are okay in the LDS church. Now, notice he says, though, it's not scriptural that questions are bad. It's cultural. Well, what culture is he talking about? He's talking about the culture of the LDS Church. And by the way, this is not separate and apart from what is taught by the leaders of the LDS Church. The leaders have taught very clearly, the leaders have taught very clearly that questions are okay as long as you stay in the church, but doubts are not okay. And I was surprised to hear Stephen Harper actually use the D word 
when he was talking. He says, doubts are okay. He says, questions, doubts, concerns, and fears are okay. Well, maybe he needs to pay a little bit more attention to what's going on in contemporary Mormonism and a little bit less about what's going on in historical Mormonism because Elder Oaks of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles has made it very clear in recent general conferences that questions may be okay as long as you stay in the church, which is how he defines a question, but doubts are not okay in the LDS yeah, church. Yeah, very true. Um, there are lots of talks that point to the idea that you're here stating, RFM, which is that uh, questions are just curiosities. Questions have nothing to do with your testimony. Questions have nothing to do with whether you believe in or not believe in the church. I mean, obviously anybody can have questions and they're still in the boat and they're still believing and they're still members of the church and they still have temple recommends, they're still paying full tithing. The church sees, just as you're pointing out, that the moment your questions cause you to step back from participation in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, suddenly that's no longer a question. That's a doubt. And doubts are bad. So while Stephen likes to say, look, the church clearly teaches that questions and doubts are okay, that's not true. That's not a true statement. The church is absolutely clear that you can have questions, as you point out, as long as those questions keep you as a faithful, participating, believing member. But the reality is that the data imposes that once one dives into all this messiness, people are renegotiating their membership in the church in a multitude of ways. And yes, some of them are staying. Some of them continue to have a nuanced belief, such as Stephen Harper, I think, um, without a doubt, holds. But Many members are stepping back in various ways. They're changing their tithing from gross to surplus. They are refusing to go into the temple because of the imbalance with gender. Uh, they are uh, choosing to which callings to hold and which ones to say no to. They're only going to church one or two weeks a month. They are perhaps stepping back completely from activity. Some of them are resigning and um, completely stepping back from the church in essentially every regard. So the idea that doubts are okay, questions are okay, that's not true. That's not how Mormonism has framed it, including various leaders within this church. Um, I also want to go back to something he said at the end of the last episode that I want to tie into what he's doing here. Uh, he, he makes the idea that, you know, there's a lot of people out there struggling. And he even admits, he goes, to some, to some degree, I'm one of those strugglers. And he admits, too, that... Lucky for him, he's had this formative experience when he was younger. I simply want to say that uh, the idea of having a formative experience, he needs to be at least a little careful in terms of blaming uh, the person who leaves uh, over, over having discovered the church narrative doesn't add up. When, when you say like, hey, there are a lot of people out there having doubts, I'm not having doubts to the degree they are because I had this experience with the Holy Ghost. We ought to be careful that we're not blaming people who are struggling in the church 
because their spiritual experiences are different. Like people can only have the spiritual experiences they can have. Uh, yes, we can ask people to read more and to pray more, but the reality is, as Marlon Jensen noted, we are losing our best and brightest. And that may seem offensive to some, but I simply want to say we're not losing the people who cared too little. We're losing the people who cared too much. They were completely invested, both feet in. And so to say like there's some degree of fault because they didn't have the spiritual experience that I had, and I know he doesn't mean it that way. And in fact, I think he would he would want to jump in here and say like, no, 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 that's not at all what I'm saying. And he would want to defend that those who can't make it work. I just want to be careful that we recognize like we can't place blame on anybody who's leaving to any degree. Uh, when it comes to church history. If people resign because they want to go drink, they want to go sin, they want to go do crazy things, great. Um, But most individuals who leave the church over having once been both feet in and no longer are, it's because things did not add up and they had little to no choice for what their brain concluded at the end. Right. And I will go ahead and add to that, that actually... Stephen Harper does go all in on blaming people who have not had the spiritual experiences that he claims he has had that has kept him in the church, and those will comprise his final comments in this interview. One other thing that he said just in this last clip, though, which I thought was interesting, is he's talking about the different reactions a person can have when they encounter troubles and problems with church history. Up to this point, the LDS Church has said, well, you can divide into two categories, questions or doubts. Questions are okay, doubts not okay. But Stephen Harper goes further and he reveals more about himself and where he really is. He doesn't just say you can have questions or doubts. He says you can have questions, you can have doubts, you can have concerns, and you can even have fears over what you encounter when you're studying church history. I thought that was a very revealing statement. Yeah, he makes fears um, perfectly appropriate. Uh, obviously, someone who reads contradictory information and has fear, they're having fear that, oh my goodness, what if this isn't true? What if this doesn't add up? What if, what if I keep digging and I find more problems, which he's also hinted at as the very thing that happens if you keep reading church history? Right, and there are many people, and I have been there, who begin studying church history who find out scary stuff. And because of that, pull back and say, I'm not going any further into this. I don't want to find any more skeletons in that closet. I'm going to just stick with the regular correlated material and go on my merry way as a faithful Latter-day Saint, because I don't want to go into that scary place. As somebody else once said, I thought it was a very apt expression. He said, it's impossible to walk two steps into the minefield of church history without losing a limb. <laughs> and it's a scary I, yeah. place. It's, it acts out in everybody's life who dives into this. It's a very scary place. So once again, I want to give credit to Stephen Harper for actually, authentically describing his experience and many people's experience with the scary minefield that is church history. Hmm. Are we ready to go on? Play the tape. And so I think the important thing then is what do you do after you ask, right? right? So what do we do? Well, one of the most important things to do is to assess our assumptions. We 
go into our questions with assumptions that often we're not even aware of. And those assumptions make all the difference in what kinds of answers we will find or what the answers will mean to us when we find them. So there's a lot of introspection to be done before or even during the time we're reading the Book of Mormon or reading accounts of the first vision or whatever else it is. In other words, just having access to the historical records is not the solution to the problem. It's part of the solution. We have to have the witness. We have to have the records in order to assess their truthfulness. But the assumptions we bring to that process will determine what the outcome is for us. And many people make uninformed assumptions. Um, this is where training as a historian can be really helpful. Because you learn when you study the historical method to not project your own views or assumptions onto the past. To try to get into the minds of the people who lived in the past. There's a famous um, line from a novel published in the 50s that says, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Let me jump in here for just a second and share something, RFM, which is that, again, in the previous segment where we were talking about, he's saying that questions aren't bad. I, I want to say, like, I want to push back a little bit and say, like, why was Jeremy Runnels excommunicated? And I, I don't think Jeremy would have called himself a believer. I think he certainly no longer believed. But all Jeremy had done was put out the CES letter. And the CES letter was simply full of data and questions. Um, Jeremy was actually not very public in terms of his own voice being out there besides this letter that he'd written. Why was Leonard Arrington released as church historian? Why was D. Michael Quinn excommunicated? Uh, I don't think Stephen, I think Stephen would be very uncomfortable if we had a conversation about what the church has done with people who share factual data and who have questions. So I, I want to start there. The second thing I want to say is he says our assumptions determine the outcome. I simply want to say false. Like if I start with the assumption that the earth is flat, if I'm open to the data, eventually the data compels me to recognize the earth is in a spherical shape. Um, it is not going to be simple. Now, again, there's going to be flat earthers out there. There's going to be people who are going to be stubborn and hold their stances regardless, which I think is what he's actually suggesting is that we start with the assumption that the church is true and we cling to it no matter where the data takes us. Because in the real world, we make assumptions and when those assumptions don't hold up, we have to change our mind. The assumptions do not determine our outcome. They only determine our starting place. Okay, so what I hear Stephen Harper doing here is talking about an actual piece of historical training and part of the historical method is that first off you cannot go into something completely open-minded the interviewer doesn't get that she's going to ask a question about that here in a few minutes but what he's saying is everybody has assumptions we all have assumptions we can't get rid of our assumptions the best that we can do is identify the assumptions that we have going into a subject so that if they're identified, we can do our best not to allow our assumptions to control our interpretation of the evidence. So we don't project our historical assumptions, as he says, upon the evidence. Now, on the other hand, that's good historical methodology. But what he's also saying on the, on the believer side of the coin is that 
he has a witness that the Book of Mormon is true. This is what you were saying, Bill. He believes it's true because he had a good feeling when he read it when he was on his mission and he prayed about it. And he believes his father's testimony, which he bore to him when he was younger. So he goes into it already with this assumption that the Book of Mormon is true. And I think what he's doing here to give him the most charitable reading is he's saying, I have an assumption. And my assumption is that the Book of Mormon is true. But what he doesn't seem to get is that he goes on to say that even before we start reading the Book of Mormon, he actually identifies the Book of Mormon as one of the historical texts he's talking about. We have to not project our assumptions onto the text. And yet, I will lay you odds, dollars to donuts, Bill, that when he read the Book of Mormon, he's already on his mission for crying out loud. Is he committed to the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon? Is that an assumption that he has about the Book of Mormon? Not only because he's on his mission, a lifetime member of the church, but because his dad has already told him, hey, I know the Book of Mormon is true. Of course he has an assumption that the Book of Mormon is true. And he goes to it, he reads it, and lo and behold, guess what happens? His assumption is confirmed by what he calls a wonderful feeling that he had as he was reading the Book of Mormon. So on the one hand, Stephen Harper is able to uh, correctly teach the historical methodology about not taking your assumptions and imposing it on the historical record, but it appears that he's not able to actually put that in practice in his own life, at least insofar as it comes to the Book of Mormon. Yeah, and, and I'm hearing, I'm hearing a, a paradox or a contradiction here as well, which is he starts off with this healthy advice and he's pointing to the critic. And he, what he's saying is that when the critic forms assumptions that point to a negative, unfaithful conclusion about the church, surely they're going to find the data that fits that. And if they're, if they maintain that assumption, then no matter what the data says, they're going to end with having lost belief in the church. So if I um, make bad assumptions they are going to affect whether I have the flexibility to make the church work or not work for me. But then by the end, RFM, what he's done is he's turned it on its head and he's essentially said, I've made assumptions about the truthfulness of the church and I'm not willing to change my assumptions. So I got a little bit of wiggle room on maybe a historical issue and how I interpret or how my paradigm looks at that, but I can never allow myself to see the church is not true because I've made assumptions and I'm going to hold those until my dying breath. You can't have it both ways. If you're going to recommend to the critic that a healthy framework is, sure, you started with assumptions. Can we test those? Can we see if the data fits those assumptions? And if they don't, are you willing to change your assumptions? He would certainly say that to the critic. But when it comes to himself, he is being the exact opposite, which is saying like, look, my assumptions will, will, uh, cause the outcomes. Like whatever assumptions I make, if I hold those to my dying breath, they allow me to maintain the outcomes I want to have. That's not how life works in every other facet of our lives. And you can use science as an example. I know a lot of apologists don't like the idea of using science, but in science, we go into an experiment with an assumption. We, um, we test that assumption. If that assumption doesn't hold up, we have to be willing to change our assumption. When the missionaries go into an investigator's home and that investigator is Catholic, the missionaries are asking that Catholic person to test their assumptions and to change their assumptions if the data and the spirit of, of, of the Holy Ghost or the, the spirit of discernment or the light of Christ imposes that they do that. 
So again, Mormonism looks fondly upon everybody outside of the orthodox or believing member um, at changing assumptions and specifically suggests that the critic consider doing it. But when it comes to us as believers, Harper makes it clear that his assumption is the church is true. Where the data goes doesn't matter. Uh, I'm simply going to hold that ground. Yes. And if I can just say a couple of things about this last quote that he uses at the last part of the, the piece that we just listened to, where he's quoting from a novel from the 1950s. This is a favorite quote of historians. I've only heard it from Mormon historians. I expect other historians like it too. It ends up being completely misquoted and taken out of context, but it's from a 1953 novel. It's a fictional novel called The Go-Between, and it's a rather famous novel. It actually opens with this line, the past is a different country. They do things differently there. Now, the way that Stephen Harper is using that is trying to say, hey, anything that happens in the past, any assumptions we have now have no applicability there. We don't have any right to impose any assumptions that we have on the past because it's a completely foreign country and the people there are like aliens. They don't do things anywhere near the way we do. We cannot understand them. Well, that first off is a completely bogus position to take. The fact is that the human condition today is the same as it is here in the United States, as it is in Mexico, as it is in Canada, as it is in Europe, as it is in China, as it is in Korea. The human condition is the same everywhere. They may have different traditions, they may have different values, but the human condition remains the same. That is why, for example, the plays of Shakespeare, which were written 400 years ago, still resonate with people today because they're dealing with characters that experience the same things as people do today. One simple example, Romeo and Juliet, you got two kids who are in love with each other. The parents say stay apart. They try and keep them apart. What happens? They end up being thrust more together because their parents don't want them to be together. Does that sound like something that doesn't happen today? If you look at um, Macbeth, You've got a guy who is ambitious. He wants to be the king. He decides maybe he'll kill the king. Then he backs off. But his wife, who's a stronger figure than he is, browbeats him and intimidates him and humiliates him into going forward and killing the king so that he can become the king and she can become the queen. Does that sound like anything that resonates with today? This is part of the human condition. And so when you say things are done differently there than they are here, it is true in certain relatively minor cases. But overall, what we would expect to have happen today is what people would expect to have happen yesterday and the day before and 50 years ago and 150 years ago at the time of Joseph Smith. If I can say one other thing, because there is, there's an especially ironic point to using this quote. Very briefly, I haven't read the book. I read the Cliff's Notes version for preparing for this podcast, The Go-Between from 1953. This is a story, it's called The Go-Between because there's this innocent, naive kid, he's a teenager, and it's in England, and he goes off to a school, and he is used by a girl and a boy 
older girl, older boy. The girl is kind of affluent. The boy is not. They're really not supposed to be together because of the social restrictions in England at the time. But they use this boy as the go-between to send messages back and forth between them. He doesn't know he's being used. He doesn't know what's in the messages. Finally, he finds it out and it kind of blows up and, and he gets blamed for it. Well, he's telling this story. The author is telling this story when he's 60 years old. And he's telling the story about what happened when he was a teenager. And when he's saying the past is a different country, they do things differently there. He's talking about himself as a young person. He's talking about his own past. And what he's saying is basically the idea that if I knew then what I know now, I never would have done that because the past is a different country. They do things differently there. And interestingly, I think that I'm not going to go too far with your audience, Bill, if I tell them that I was baptized in 1978. I've studied church history to the point where if I knew when I was 18 what I know now about church history, I would not have joined the LDS church. You see, in my case, as well as in everybody else's case with different things, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Ooh, that's, that is so good. Right. So it's being used in one way that's actually the opposite of the way in which he's using it. And I agree with him. I agree with it because I know how he's using it. I agree with him that if we go back into the past, for instance, and 70-year-old men do marry 12-year-olds on every block of a census, that we are going to have to think of that issue differently than the way we think of it today. What, but I don't think it's fair is that the church uses it and its apologists use it. And here, Stephen Harper is using it, although more ambiguously, um, in the way that like, hey, we don't know what was done in the past and we're going to assume it was done differently there. And, and hence, we're going to make room that we could just be wrong. That's not the way we work. We work based on trying to be reasonable and rational. And again, human beings suck at it. But we try to be reasonable and rational. And what that means is we try to come up with the most, um, the, 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 uh, we try to come up with the solution or answer that has the least amount of workarounds. Like um, Adam Miller wrote a book called Goldberg's um, Machine. Um, and if you know what a Goldberg's machine is, it's this intricate machine that does a thousand different steps that could have been just done with one. When we dive into issues, we're looking for the least amount of extra steps to explain what is happening that we read or happens before our eyes. So uh, Spencer Wright is a, uh, a LDS, former LDS uh, member. He's an author. He's written books about this. And he talks about if a cat knocks a, uh, a bottle of water off the table, we could come up with a thousand reasons that aliens took over the brain of the cat. I mean, we could come up with anything that's intricate and involves a lot of extra steps. The, the reasonable answer is that the cat simply knocked the glass off the table. And when it comes to Mormonism, when we dive in the data and we look for the solution to the issues, to the data that has the least amount of workarounds, Stephen Harper, by his own not wanting to talk about church history and recognizing that he now has more questions than he has answers, way more, according to him, 
It's a realization that if we allow the answer with the least amount of workarounds, it's not the faithful answer, and it certainly isn't the orthodox answer. Um, So we ought to grant that, sure, in the past, things may have been done differently. Until you can prove they were done differently, you don't get to use that as an excuse. And I know, just as you pointed out, um, man, maybe it wasn't you. Maybe it was another conversation. Uh, Maybe I'll say it this way. I heard earlier, I don't know if it was you, RFM, or if it was somewhere else I was reading today, but we come up with lots of reasons for polygamy. Um, our brain likes to come up with data points. It's the the widows, uh, they needed men. It was the fact that so many men were lost along the, the trek west. It's the fact that so many women joined the church. Like we come up with all those reasons. They're not real. And so if we're not going to make space and say like, what really happened and what is the most reasonable solution to what really happened, uh, all we're doing is playing games with ourselves because these beliefs are important to us, they're sacred to us, and our brain uh, and our comfort zone wants to do anything that we can to maintain those pieces that are sacred to our identity. Hmm. Very interesting. I agree with you. And before we slip to the next clip, I want to uh, quote in response to The 1953 quote from the British novelist, the past is a different country, they do things differently there. I want to juxtapose that with one of my favorite quotes from an American author, William Faulkner, who said, the past isn't dead. It's not even past. Okay, let's play the next clip. We need to go into it with an open mind. An open mind and having identified our our assumptions, our expectations. Let me give you an example. There's something I call hypothetical history. And you can hear hypothetical history in Sunday school and in, in um, all kinds of conversations. And it goes like this. If Joseph Smith saw God in Christ, then, then he went right home and he told his family. Mm-hmm. He wrote it down immediately. He told the same story every time to everybody he met. When you assume those things and then come up against the historical records, your assumptions are shown to be false. But if you don't, none of those things are are documented. None of those things have to be true. There's no law written in the universe that said any of those things are true. They're hypotheticals. They're just my assumptions. They're just my expectations about what would happen if I wrote history, if I uh, knew everything about the past. So when we do hypothetical history, we will always be disappointed in it. It will, it will be overturned. Our assumptions will be proven wrong. And if we can't discern the difference between our assumptions and things as they really were, we will come to the conclusion that our faith has been overturned, that the gospel has been proven wrong. That's not the case. It's just our expectations or assumptions that have been proven wrong. Stop the tape. Stop the tape. He's coming out of the woodwork now, baby. So here's what he says, okay? First thing he says, he starts talking about hypothetical history. And he is good enough to identify hypothetical history as what we learn at church. Okay, that's the first thing. Hypothetical history is what we learn at church. It's what's in the manuals. It is the correlated version of church history. It is what Richard Bushman has called the dominant narrative, which Richard Bushman has said is not true, and which Stephen Harper is saying here in a little bit more protracted way, is not true. He says, at the end, when we find out that our hypothetical history 
is not correct, we may think that the gospel has been proven untrue, but that's not correct. It was just our hypothetical history and our assumptions that were proven untrue. But what he's really saying is the hypothetical history that is taught in the LDS church does not match the historical record. And when you study the historical record, you find out that the dominant narrative is not true. But then somehow uh, that does not mean, for Stephen Harper at least, that the gospel is not true. Yeah, and I will I will only add one little thing, which is he uses this idea of whether Joseph Smith should be expected to go home after his first vision and to tell his parents. And I agree with him that if we take a thousand things we expect, some of those things are not going to go the way we thought they should go. Like, we're going to be wrong once in a while. We, but that's not how, again, we don't live our life making room to be wrong on everything. So I don't go home at night and go, you know what? I think tomorrow, I, I, you know, the sun's come up every single day, but I'm going to leave room that maybe tomorrow the sun doesn't come up and my assumption's just wrong. Like we don't live that way. And so when, when you have, when you go into church history, when you dive down this rabbit hole, what happens is you recognize like, wait a minute, the book of more, the book of Abraham doesn't add up. We were told it happened a certain way. That's not how it happens. Now apologists are giving us this catalyst theory, this missing scroll. Um, the first vision. Yeah, we think Joseph should go home and tell his parents. Uh, the Book of Mormon being a completely ancient text. And now Bushman's telling us there's a ton of 19th century material there. Uh, the fact that the 1838 account is the first vision paradigm that we have formed our testimonies on. And now we find out there's this 1832 account and they contradict themselves in places. What the church asks us to do, what Stephen Harper would ask us to do, is to make room for the the non-reasonable answer, the non-expected answer, to be the case over and over and over again. And that's not reality. So when I encounter one issue and it turns out that my assumption's wrong, so be it. When I run into a thousand issues in a row where my assumption has to be wrong in order for this all to add up, I begin to second guess what I'm looking at. I begin to wonder if somehow I'm being asked to believe the unbelievable. Yes, and actually this is why he led in to this part by that quote which he used out of context, the past is, the past is a different country, they do things differently there. So back in Joseph Smith's time, who the hell knows what they're going to do? It has no basis at all to what we might do if we were in a similar situation. We might think if we had a, a, a revelation and a vision of God the Father and Jesus Christ, or just Jesus Christ even, we'd go home, we'd tell somebody, we wouldn't wait for years before he first committed it to paper. And by the way, the thing he doesn't mention is that according to Joseph Smith, when he saw the angel Moroni, what was the first thing he did? Well, he went and told his parents. So that would be a counterexample. That would be more what we would expect. And yet here we have Joseph Smith in one instance with Moroni going right home and telling his parents and this other instance with seeing Jesus Christ or both beings. And apparently he doesn't go home. He doesn't tell his parents. He doesn't tell any about it for a very, very long period of time. So what Stephen Harper's trying to do is say, look, I know that this is not what we would expect. This is not reasonable to expect that because our expectations are usually based upon 
our reasonableness. Is this a reasonable thing to expect? Is it reasonable to expect Joseph Smith to do this one thing? Or is it unreasonable to expect that he would do this one thing? Well, these are reasonable expectations. But what he's trying to get away from is saying reasonableness does not apply here in the study of history, which is not true. Of course, reasonableness applies. But he's trying to give a king's ex and a carte blanche for Joseph Smith to do any crazy ass stuff that he wants to do in church history and say you can't judge it as being true or not based upon your expectations, even though your expectations are reasonable and even though your expectations are based upon your life experience and what a reasonable person would do under the same circumstances. Yeah. Let me let me give another example. So Joseph Smith had a pattern of proposing and marrying and having sex with um, Lucy Walker and the Lawrence sisters, who all three were adopted by Joseph and Emma as their daughters because either A, they sent uh, Brother Walker on a mission, Joseph did, or in the Lawrence uh, sisters, I don't know their situation specifically, but for other reasons, they are adopted into the Smith home. All three of these women report being uh, seen and um, referred to and thought of as the daughters of Joseph Smith. Lucy Walker says, Joseph referred to us, meaning her and her sister, as his daughters. And Joseph promises Lucy Walker's father that she he will take care of her as his own child. Now, when I see Joseph Smith as a, uh, at this point, probably late, uh, mid to late 30s, when I see him propose to these women who are really young girls, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, who are living in his home, and he marries them uh, and, and has sex with them, it becomes difficult for me to just handle that. And so what the apologist would say in this point would be, we don't know how God sees things. We don't know how God uh, would, would act in these situations. And so we need to make room, as the person with doubts, we need to make room that God might just be perfectly okay with a grown man changing his relationship with a female that he is treating as his adopted daughter into one that is a husband-wife relationship. Now, I'm not okay with that. But so it's difficult to take the apologist line of thinking and say, like, I just have to be okay with it because God just does things differently. The point being, we don't, again, live our lives that way. We have assumptions. We have things that our gut says are okay and things our gut says like, no, that's not all right. And I'm not going to make space for a God who changes a familial relationship into a um, connubial one. And, and so I want to be really careful here that we don't just make room for anything simply because we weren't there, you don't know, and that seems to be the excuse. You weren't there, you don't know, or have faith. Whenever those answers happen, it feels like I'm being asked to disregard the most rational answer and to make space for something that's less than meaning irrational. Yeah, and it's not even like it's 50-50 as far as rational versus irrational answer. This is 99.5% to a half a percent. Obviously, this is wrong. But if I can channel Stephen Harper here for a second, based on what he said in the interview, here's what he would say to you. Now, if somebody did today what Joseph Smith did back then in the past, that would be wrong. No question about it. 
But because Joseph Smith now lives in this sacred and untouchable territory called the past, where they do things differently there, we cannot judge him based upon our expectations of today, and therefore we aren't able to have that. What Stephen Harper is saying is that because it happened in the past, even though he would condemn it today as unethical and immoral, because it happened in the past, therefore he can't judge it. He cannot apply his expectations to it. It's simply what happened, and God forbid that it should have any impact upon his testimony of the truth of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And boy, in Joseph Smith's past, they do things really differently there. Really differently. Okay, you ready to go to the next clip? Let's do it. Lay the tape. And so in your studies, um, you talked about that your testimony wasn't shaken by what you studied. Was it strengthened? Yeah, I would say so. But again, um, let's say that I, I, I don't study church history looking for strengthening of my faith. I, I sort of already know where my faith is. I think I study church history because I have faith, because I have a testimony. Um, and there are people who study it who don't have a testimony. So uh, the reasons for studying it, uh, some people study it to try to disprove the church, and some people study it to try to prove the church. And I think I study it because I want to understand who I am. I want to understand the doctrine and the history that have gone into making me who I am and that shape my future, my, my eternal future. Stop the tape. This is one of those hysterical points where the interviewer says, well, has your study of church history strengthened your faith? And he goes, well, yeah, but... Because no, it hasn't. He knows the right answer is supposed to be, yeah, but no, it hasn't really strengthened his faith. In fact, it has damaged his faith irreparably. What he's going to end up saying is that he's realized that all the magical and miraculous elements of Mormonism are not true. And he found it out through his study of church history. What I find is he's contradicting his previous quote. Um, when, when he says, like, look, I've got more questions and answers, church history is not where I look for, for strengthening my faith. And then he says, yeah, it's strengthening it. And as you point out, then he gives the big but. And then he acknowledges, like, I just don't look for it to strengthen my faith. Well, why wouldn't he? If, if, if church history has strengthened his faith, he would clearly want to articulate that position. He doesn't want to articulate it because it hasn't. He also seems to be saying, he goes, I don't study church history looking to strengthen my faith. I already know where my faith is. I think I study church history because I have faith. I have a testimony. In other words, he's saying, I've already arrived at a conclusion, which is that I'm going to stay in this church to my dying breath. And I don't see church history as a chance to revise that for good or bad, that particular position of staying in the church, staying active, and continuing forward in spite of the fact that the data doesn't uh, corroborate the church's narrative at every single turn. Right, and then he's forced into this absolutely ridiculous statement of, I study church history to find out who I am. What the hell does that even mean? I don't understand what that means. I think that's a stupid thing to say. I mean, it sounds kind of highbrow and kind of intellectual, but I don't think it means anything. All I think it is is something to say 
to fill in the gap about why it is that studying church history does not strengthen his testimony. Well, I don't study it to increase my testimony. Well, why do you study it? Well, I I study it to find out um, who I am. Yes, that's why I study church history. BS. I'm calling BS on that one, Stephen Harper. I love you, but I must be brutal. If if Stephen had been born in the Methodist church, would he not be who he is? Would, <laughs> if Stephen was born in the Middle East, would he not be... Like, again, I get our culture um, is a part of who we are. I get that. I get that the kinds of parents that we have, the way we're raised... In fact, if we want to just go to science, like those things probably play a really large role. The environment we grow up in and the kinds of um, experiences that we have within that environment. But he's not using it that way. Like the kind of, like the human being I am, Mormonism reveals to me who I am. Well, that's not a, a position one can hold if. You're essentially saying like in any other religion, in any other uh, growing up context, in any other environment besides Mormonism, you're, you're not going to find out who you are? Or are you, or are you saying, Stephen, that in any of these religions, you can find out who you are by developing within that religion? Like, I don't know. I, I, as you point out, the statement really doesn't make any sense um, to just throw it out there and to just say it and just say like, oh, yeah, yeah, I find out who I am by studying my church history. So by knowing that Newell K. Whitney was the, uh, you know, the second bishop in the church and Edward Partridge was the first, however that worked, like that doesn't tell me anything about who I am. No, nothing. And if I, if I go a little bit deeper and try and actually give him a little bit more grace here, I think that what he's revealing is that he is so thoroughly Mormon that he is a Mormon, he identifies himself as a Mormon, that is who he is. And I think it's also an insight into why it is that nothing he ever studies in church history is ever going to change who he is. He is going to be a Mormon from cradle to grave, from birth to earth, from sperm to worm. Yeah, it's his tribe. It's where he's planted his stakes. And regardless of where the data goes... He's already established that this is the place he's going to be throughout the entire mortal journey. Yeah, he's going to die on this hill in spite of the questions, in spite of the doubts, in spite of the concerns, in spite of the fears, in spite of the hosts of questions that he does not have answers for. And we'll never have an answer for it because as he continues to learn, those questions just keep proliferating, according to what he said earlier. Yep. Ready to go to the next clip? Let's do it. And I think um, these days, oftentimes, our friends will come to us. Um, we talked about when we see things in the news that mm. maybe freak us out a little bit till we study it. What about when our friends come to us with these questions? Um, maybe they're members of the church, maybe they aren't. Sure. Um, good place to start for us as members of the church? Well, the best place to start is to listen, to listen to Follow your dad. them. Right. Yeah. yeah. My dad was so great at that, uh, to listen. I take this cue also from a, a terrific talk that President Eyring gave, uh, Elder Eyring then in the early 90s, about how to help a student in a moment of doubt. And he said the first thing to do is to not treat them like they have some sort of disease or something. It's to treat them like a seeker, an honest seeker of truth. 
You know, the Methodist minister, no disrespect to Methodists or Methodism, but the minister who rebuffed Joseph Smith, he went about it all wrong. That's not true, son. Shut your mouth. Don't ever say that again. That's not the right way to treat a seeker who's looking for the answers to their questions. They're honest, sincere questions. And my dad got it right. He listened. He didn't freak out. He wasn't uh, um, surprised that somebody would be, have a question or a concern or even kind of flippantly challenge the faith. He was steady. He was honest. And the best thing we can do to, for uh, our friends and our family and even for ourselves is to listen. So first we want to hear what they're really saying. And often that's not the words that come out of their mouth want to hear what they're really saying. Sometimes they need to articulate it even to figure out what they're thinking themselves. And then we want to give honest responses. And I've found that the most frequent response I end up giving in situations like that is, I don't know. Yeah. A lot of times we don't know. We don't know. There's a lot more we don't know. Okay, stop the tape. First off, I want to say for Stephen Harper, this is, I think, the strongest part of the interview where he really puts forward some good ideas that the most important thing that we can do is listen to somebody even if they're flippant like he was when he was a teenager if they've got a question treat them like a seeker of truth and do them the courtesy of actually listening to what it is they have to say and i like the part where he says sometimes they just need a chance to say what it is they're thinking to articulate it in order to be able to formulate it for their own selves so they can understand what the issue is that they have themselves. And I think that was actually quite beautiful. Now, there's another aspect to what he said, though, that is the dark side, and that, frankly, Bill, really pisses me off because he talks about the Methodist minister who got it all wrong because what he said to Joseph Smith was, that's not true, son. Shut your mouth. Don't ever say it again. And I'll be damned if that isn't what Salt Lake City is saying to you, Bill, right now, through the mouth of your state president. Yeah, so when I heard Stephen Harper articulate that that's not the way, like that person, that minister treated Joseph Smith unfairly. Let's look at what was happening. Joseph Smith had a inclination towards Methodism. He admits that himself in the historical record. When Joseph tells this minister that the answers he's getting from God and the data he's discovering within his Bible and in his conversations with people around him is leading him to decide that Methodism is not true, this minister then condemns Joseph Smith for being an apostate, really, and essentially saying, you need to be quiet or you're going to have to get lost. And it's the very thing that LDS leadership does to every single person who dives down the rabbit hole, discovers that the data has way too many contradictions for belief to be reasonable in the Mormon narrative. And as they are throwing in the towel and begin to be public about that perspective, just as Joseph Smith was, the LDS church goes after them one by one by one. Yes. So 
I think that when you take what Stephen Harper says and compare it to how the LDS Church really acts, there's a huge disparity, there's a huge distinction, there's a night and day difference. On the other hand, if Stephen Harper were ever up for the position of apostle, I'd be there to vote for him because I think I would like a church that was headed by Stephen Harper a lot better than I'd like a church headed by Russell M. Nelson. Yeah. Um, there's a couple other things here, too. He keeps talking about how we should treat the questioner as a seeker. Great advice. Here's the trouble. Um, it's one thing to make a safe space for people to have questions, to be seeking answers. Again, Mormonism, the moment you decide that the data imposes for you that you are going to have to go with an unfaithful con conclusion, Mormonism no longer treats you as an honest seeker of truth. So while Stephen is advocating the position that his father took, and it is a healthy position, Stephen also knows darn well that's not the way his church treats those who struggle so deeply with the data that they feel there's nothing else on the table in terms of siding with the faithful conclusion that they have to throw in the towel. He treats, um, he treats the seeker responsibly, but he will never be caught being public about the fact that he knows that the church doesn't do the very thing he's recommending. Um, once one makes honest conclusions that are non-faithful to those honest, sincere questions by that honest, sincere seeker, they are labeled less than, fallen, and wayward. And the way I point to this is to say, if you go look at our narrative, look at all of our manuals, take in every single manual we have, and maybe even even used for the last 50 years, we have lots of stories of people who left, who were broken, who were the tares and chafe among the wheat, who were wayward, who were apostate, and who left for stupid reasons. We don't have one healthy story in our entire narrative of someone who was an honest seeker, who dived down the rabbit hole, who couldn't make it work, and in an act of courage and integrity, stepped away from this church. Now, another point. He says we need to, he ends by saying, sometimes the best answer, and the answer he gives a lot, is I don't know. But at the, but at the question begging to be asked from this, is what if we permit the most reasonable answer and most reasonable conclusion to sit on the table? In other words, the only reason we're saying, I don't know, is because we're maintaining the assumption that the church has to be true. If you allow, if Stephen Harper says, if I say, Stephen, allow for a moment the critical conclusion to have a seat at the table, do we now have enough data to answer to say that, yes, we do know? And the realization is, yeah, we do. Once an unfaithful solution is allowed to be in the presence of these questions, it resolves many of these issues individually, and it might solve the entire problem collectively. Wow, that is really, really a good point, Bill. When I was hearing him say those words, I was thinking something else entirely. And what I was thinking was, here is a guy who has devoted his entire career to studying church history. He has exclusive access to the original documents. He's up to his elbows in the original documents. This is what he does eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. This is his 
passion and his career. And yet, he says, a lot of times people come up to him who are having questions about church history. Now, Bill, you and I know there's not an infinite number of questions that people have about church history. There's about 12, right? And they have to do with certain subjects, whether it's the use of the seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon or the historicity of the Book of Mormon or the historicity of the Book of Abraham or the practice of polygamy, the practice of polyandry. You know, there's really only six that come up frequently and maybe another six if you go to a second tier of questions that come up less frequently. Are we agreed on that at least? Yeah, and I and I think just quickly to say Sure, there may be a billion questions out there. The ones that people who are struggling with the truthfulness of the church, you're right. It's a half dozen to a dozen. They are very um, pointed questions, and they deal directly with the foundational truth claims of this church. And we know what they are, and we know that the church knows what they are because that's where they have focused the essays that they have published on the church website. Those are addressed to the questions that most frequently come up. So here we've got Stephen Harper saying that people come up to him frequently with questions. We know it's six to 12 questions. And what is the answer that a member in the church historian's office gives most frequently to people who come up to him with these six to 12 questions about church history? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Can you imagine what's going through the interviewer's mind? She's going, who is this reject? How do we get him on the program? This guy's supposed to have the answers. What is this I don't know crap? Think about it too. Again, he's brought on as the expert on church history. And he now says like, yeah, when people come to me with church history questions, I know the church history intimately. And my answer back is, I don't know. And we know that from the context, okay, I'm, I'm intuiting a bit here, right? We know from the context that the questions are not, did Joseph Smith practice polygamy? Well, the answer is yes. It's not, I don't know. The question is not, did Joseph Smith marry teenage girls? The answer is yes. Not, I don't know. The question, uh, the question is, did Joseph Smith marry other men's wives? The answer is yes. It's not, I don't know. The questions that he is being approached with, to which he says, I don't know, are why questions and how questions. How could Joseph Smith have married teenage girls and been a true prophet of God? I don't know. How could Joseph Smith have married other men's wives and been a prophet of God? How could God tell Joseph Smith to do that? I don't know. Those are the kinds of questions to which he responds, I don't know. And those are the questions that cause the doubts, the concerns, the worries, and the fears that strike someone when they're studying church history. It's not finding out what happened. That's pretty much black and white. The problem is when you try and compare what happened with your testimony of the truthfulness of the church and the prophetic mantle of Joseph Smith. Yeah, I, I, man, first off, I want to set up the next soundbite, which is the best soundbite, I think, in the entire thing, because at this point, <laughs> he shows all of his cards. Um, so again, let me just remind the listener, if, if you want to cut Again, I like Stephen Harper. I've met Stephen Harper. I've gone to the church history department. I've shaken Stephen's hand. Uh, he's, a, he's a handsome fellow. He is a tall. He looks like an athlete, a guy who played football, it looks like. I've got a total um, man crush got, going. Well, sure. He's got a, he's got a, a charismatic personality. He's oh, smart. no, I wouldn't he's go articulate. that far. At least not on TV. 
Okay. So <laughs> I, I like him. And, and I, people are going to listen to this and go, I've got some beef with Stephen Harper. That's not true. I actually think he is one of the softest, nicest people you're going to talk about your doubts with in this church. Yeah. The trouble is he is uh, having to defend a position that is indefensible. So uh, before we get to this next soundbite, I simply want to say, I want to remind the listener, we started at a place where he said, I've got these foundation experiences and you can get answers to your questions uh, that you will resolve your concerns to the point where there's some questions that don't get resolved to the point where uh, there's an equal amount of questions and, and that don't get resolved versus ones that did. Getting to a point where uh, there's way more questions than answers uh, and now we show up at the final section of this uh, this audio. We've got, uh, I think, three clips left. This is the last giant piece of substance he's going to give. And at this point, he deconstructs everything. Play the tape. And so as we recognize that in ourselves, that we don't know everything, um, you have a great analogy where you talk about how we can hold on to what we do know and it involves Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> Santa Claus. I hope it's a. I hope it's a useful analogy. Um, I hope it doesn't burst anyone's bubble. Okay. But uh, I learned. I can't remember exactly how old I was, but I learned once that Santa Claus is not real. At least not the way I thought Santa was real. Uh, a man who magically flies a sleigh with reindeer to every person in the world and delivers Christmas presents overnight. And as I grew up, I became aware that the story is much more complicated than that and that the way I had received it from my culture was not really the truth. And um, so over time, you learn to accommodate that, right? You, you see things more as they really are and you gain more understanding and, and wisdom and you learn how to put the pieces together. What a tragedy it would have been if I had thrown out Christmas, if I learned Santa isn't real, and I say, well, then none of it's true. There's nothing of value here. I'm just throwing the whole thing out. So as we grow up, there are these losses we experience. Everyone has this experience. As you come of age, you learn that your parents are real people, They've sometimes made mistakes or haven't met all your expectations. Um, you learn that the simple math you learned in third grade is compounded and more and more complicated the more math you learn. Uh, these kinds of things are true with church history, too. Um, we learn things when we're young, and we're, they're very simplified versions of the story. And when we're older, we might learn the more complicated version of the story. And it's tempting in those situations to just throw it all out, to say, well, nothing I believed then was true. And that's not the um, happiest way, in my experience, to, to deal with that. It's better to say, well, I can see that some things I believed about Santa weren't true, but I can see there's a great deal of value in Christmas. Uh, okay, so... Let me, all right, I don't even know where to go here because there's so much juice here. And I'm, I'm hoping that uh, RFM, that you're going to, the things I miss, you're going to be able to just kind of hit these out of the park. Um, 
he, he like you pointed out as as the audio was playing. Uh, maybe the listener heard it or didn't hear it. I, I don't think the listener's going to get most of our conversations behind the scenes on the audio. You you point out that um, he says, look, we're tempted to throw it all out, that there's this Santa Claus story, and and for, he says Santa Claus is way more complicated once we learn the truth, which it isn't. It's just a... It's, uh, I was going to use bad language there. Maybe I will. It's a bullshit story used to bring happiness and joy into children's lives. Um, there's there's a greater truth there, but that truth has nothing to do with literalness. It has nothing to do with historicity. Sure, there might have been a guy way back in the day who gave a few kids a couple of gifts. It's not the story we're given today. Stephen seems to be speaking really frank here. And it would be interesting to ask him what he means by Santa Claus, but he seems to be indicating that the entire church narrative is not a literal belief of his, that Mormonism provides him goodness and happiness and joy. And so he chooses, like Santa Claus, to place belief in the myth, not with literal belief, but in the sense that he continues to share it with his children, with his loved ones, with those in his ward. He admits being tempted to throw it away, um, meaning that the, the doubter will see so many problems that tossing the baby out with the bathwater will be a reasonable decision to make. When he tells this story about Santa Claus, I am the moment I heard him say that, I was reminded of a, another person who talked about it in a very similar way. I'm going to steal your line, RFM, which is roll the tape. You know what? I'll be honest with you. I am agitated. Christmas time brings back hurtful wounds that I carry. And not just flesh wounds either. I'm talking about deep, hurtful wounds in my heart. You see, when I was seven years old, about a week before Christmas, I discovered all the presents. And I asked my dad, Dad, why did Santa deliver all the presents early? What did my dad say? Son, there is no Santa Claus. Your mother and I just told you the story about a man with a beard who lives far away, who's constantly watching you, judging you, and will reward you if you're good so that we could manipulate you into behaving the way we want you to. So I have a lot of shame about being so gullible and hurt about having my world torn apart like that. Then a few months later, I had my first communion where I started believing in a man with a beard who lives far away, is constantly watching me, judging me, and will reward me if I behave well. It's good to be free. Okay, so everybody, that was, just for your record, that was J.P. Sears. And he's pointing at the very thing Harper is doing, except he's doing it in a sarcastic, snarky way. When Harper says, like, when we learn the data of Mormonism, Mormonism becomes like Santa Claus. That the Mormon narrative is a myth story. It's bullshit. And Stephen frankly admits here, although he uses an analogy to accomplish it because he knows he can't say it outright, is the idea that when you understand what Mormonism really is, once you understand the data, it's no longer literally true. The dominant narrative is bullshit. So what happens is he says, look, 
You don't just throw out Santa Claus. You don't just toss it away. I mean, you might be tempted to, but there's still lots of goodness here. There's still lots of positive things about passing on the Santa Claus story to everybody else. He is acknowledging that Mormonism is not literally true. And he validates that once you learn that, it's reasonable to throw it away. And he's suggesting that in spite of the fact that Mormonism not being any more uh, literally true, that it's still worth holding on to. Right. Santa Claus represents the magical aspect of Christmas. It's the miraculous aspect of Christmas. And it is the part that we believe in when we're kids. And when we grow up and we find out that there is no Santa Claus, we stop believing in Santa Claus because we recognize that it's magic that doesn't really happen. It's just a bunch of stories that we were told by older people and that we believed because we were gullible little kids. But what's really funny here is when he makes this shift, because he's talking about Santa Claus, but what he's really talking about is the magical parts of church history, all the miraculous elements of church history, which have been completely overthrown by his study of church history. And the part where I have to laugh out loud and actually even yell at him while you're playing the tape is where he crosses over and he's talking about Santa Claus, but he's really talking about church history. And he says, and when you find out that Santa Claus is not real, uh, he doesn't say he's not real. He says, uh, the story of Santa Claus is more complicated than that. Well, no, the story of Santa Claus is not more complicated. It's just that he doesn't freaking exist. The story is not true. How complicated is that, Stephen Harper? But what he thinks he can do is say, well, it's more complicated than that. In some way, trying to keep alive the idea that, yeah, it's in some way true. We're just going to complicate the issue in order to try and avoid saying the obvious fact. Santa Claus doesn't exist. The, mir the miracles reported in the early LDS church did not happen. But wouldn't it be a shame if upon finding out that Santa Claus doesn't exist, that I threw out Christmas and I didn't have Christmas time with my family as a social binding event? And the analogy seems very clear to me. Once I found out that the miracle stories that we are told in church when we're young, remember he says that? The stories that were told in church when we're young, which by the way are the same stories we're told in church when we're old, they are the stories about the restoration and about the first vision and about all the miracle stories that we all know so well. Once I find out that those are not true, wouldn't it be a shame to throw out Mormonism because I use Mormonism for a very different purpose now that I'm grown up. I've realized that the miracle stories are not true, but it still serves a positive influence in my life, speaking for Stephen Harper, of being a focal point around which my family can gather and which we can be bound together and share our familial relationship. This is an incredible admission by Stephen Harper. I give him credit once again for being so honest and forthright, but I can't believe he actually shared this in a Mormon video. And more than that, I can't believe that the Mormon church put it on the Mormon website. I don't know how long it's going to last on the Mormon website once they get wind of this podcast. But I do give him credit for being honest and having a bigger degree of integrity than I have seen in any other church historians 
who rely upon the church for their paycheck. You know, as that audio was playing, he, he mentions that he hopes this analogy doesn't burst anyone's bubble. The only reason to say that is if you know the people listening believe the correlated narrative of the church and the correlated narrative as he is trying to use this analogy to point to, the correlated narrative is not true. So what bubble? Like what bubble is he bursting? Because he's not bursting anybody's bubble on Santa Claus. These are adults for crying out loud. Nobody listening believes in Santa Claus at this point. So what bubble is he bursting? He's bursting people's bubble, their testimony of the church. It's not the way we thought it was. That there is no Santa Claus? No, his listeners are not eight-year-olds. The bubble of God magic and the church's narrative not being what it's claimed to be. His analogy is the icing on the cake. He uses the analogy of a fictional magical being who watches from far, far away and knows whether we have been naughty or nice and who rewards us and punishes us. And then he tells us once we discover Santa Claus isn't real, we shouldn't throw out celebrating Christmas. He essentially is admitting this is fiction, but that we should not throw out Mormonism simply because all the magic is discovered to be a fable myth designed to encourage us to be good. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. The bathwater is the literal uh, historical take on the narrative that the church has given us and the magic that prophets, seers, and revelators can perform by being the hand of God, and none of it holds up. So hang on to the baby, which is just the fact that Mormonism is still a good thing in your life, except Stephen Harper when it no longer is. Right. And frankly, I don't know if you've been watching the news, but up here in Washington right now, it's uh, August 9th, 2018. There is a story that's been playing in the news for over a week now about this mother killer whale who gave birth to a dead calf and has been pushing it around the Puget Sound now for like seven days and is dying of dehydration. I'm not laughing at the whale. I'm laughing at where you're going. Well, when you say the baby with the bathwater, let's talk about this little dead orca baby, because that is the dead baby that is being pushed around by the church. And the dead baby is the idea of all this miraculous stuff that happened in the LDS church. That's the baby that he's saying we shouldn't throw out with the bathwater. Well, frankly, there are some babies that should be thrown out with the bathwater. And that little orca baby is one of them. Yeah. Um... We, we told people that God could perform extremely supernatural God magic miracles. We, we, we talk about a God who parts seas. We talk about a God who sends down fire at the command of his prophet. We talk about a God who can strike the critic dumb and mute. Uh, we talk about a God who can make people turn into pillars of salt and ever since history became both recordable, verifiable, and shareable, all of God's God magic ceased to be. So yes, Stephen's right. We've all learned now that Santa Claus isn't a literal story. And if Mormonism, if you learn that and you recognize that and Mormonism is still good for you and it helps you and it benefits your family, God bless you. Um, but if it doesn't, and for many it doesn't, can we not allow those people to leave with their dignity and their integrity, knowing that they made the most courageous decision that could ever be made, which is to challenge the system they grew up within? 
Yes, and I agree with that a million percent. Unfortunately, Stephen Harper is going to sort of backpedal on that position at the very end of this interview, which we are approaching rapidly. Can you play the tape for the next clip? And so with our testimonies then in the gospel, we need to just hold firm to those things that we know. Right. Okay. Right. My dad was right. Uh, This is what I know. I'm going to stick with it. And if I do so patiently and I keep looking for the answers to my questions, I will see that it will all work out. So I've proved that true in my own life a hundred times by now. He was right. And I know that from all kinds of research at this point. And I have lots more questions than I have answers to, but I know the answers that I've found are solid. They are historically verifiable. That is, by all the rules of the historical method that you learn in graduate school, they're sound and good. But it's also the case that no amount of historical research proves the gospel true. It doesn't prove it untrue, but it also doesn't prove it true. In the end, it's a spiritual process, a spiritual quest. People who are unwilling or afraid of or unable for one reason or another to trust in the Spirit and in God's desire to reveal Himself to them, they have a very hard time with this. Um, But I'm grateful that I had experiences early on that confirmed that my Father in Heaven did want to reveal to me the truthfulness of the gospel. And I believe that He loves all His children and will do that for all of His children at some point or other. I believe there's a great deal of hope. Um, I know that there's a great deal of hope uh, even for people who struggle with church history or doctrine issues. I know that they can find answers, and I know that in the meantime they can find peace and comfort. I know that their Heavenly Father loves them and that He will comfort them and guide them and lead them. Uh, And I know there are a lot of people who will help them along the way. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Stop the tape. Okay, three points I want to make here. The first one, which I think is the most important, is here is where Steve Harper does a downer and he shames people who have not had the spiritual experience that he has had which keeps him in the church in spite of finding out that santa claus is not real this is at the very end where he says unfortunately there are those who are who are unable to or afraid to trust in the spirit and that those people who are unable to trust in the spirit and afraid to trust in the spirit will have a hard time with church history. I think that was a real low point and a low blow for Stephen Harper to make, to try and shame and blame people who actually deal with the data and deal with the evidence in a responsible manner and then reach conclusions that are different than Stephen's and to say that that's because they're afraid of trusting in God. A second thing I wanted to say was that he mentions these otherwise undisclosed answers that he has found to his questions about church history and that he has found those answers. They are solid. They're certainly not all the answers. He still has many questions, as he says, but he has found some answers. They're solid. And when he says solid, he means that they are verified by the historical method. Well, that sounds like something that maybe, I don't know, you should do an interview about, Stephen. Why don't you tell us what those are? Why don't you tell us what one of those 
answers is, we're dying out here, Stephen. We need some help. But there is no help from Stephen. He is going to talk in generalities, and he is not going to give us any specifics. And this is highlighted by the fact that he knows all these platitudes. He knows the people who have trouble with church history. They'll get their answers sometime. And in the meantime, they can have peace and they can have comfort because, you know, God really cares about them. And then he says, and that God will provide people. There are people who will help them if they have problems with church history. Well, you have been an absolute zero help to anybody with a problem with church history, Stephen. You're the guy who's supposed to have the answers. And all you can say is, I freaking don't know. That's no help at all. Stephen, I mean, thanks for listening. That's a good thing. But I'd really like an answer, just one answer. And yet you've been on this interview for 25 minutes and you have not given one answer to one question about church history. And I get the idea that maybe that was the goal in the beginning. And if that was your goal, you've accomplished it. You have spent 25 minutes of an interview that is titled How to Deal with Questions About Church History. And you have managed to go the entire race without once dealing with the answer of how to deal with questions about church history. Congratulations, Stephen. You're the best. <laughs> I, I only want to say this was one giant big wood tool. Uh, and here's what I mean. Uh, his resolution to all of this is if you don't have your, your spiritual stakes solid on the fact that you felt a good feeling and therefore you know the church is true, you're going to struggle with church history. Meaning that if you just look at the data and the evidence, none of this shit adds up. That's the conclusion he is telling you. Like if you don't have a firm witness from the Holy Spirit, you're going to have a problem with your testimony because of church history. Church history is not a faith builder. The data is a detriment to faith. The narrative of Mormonism juxtaposed against the historical context and historical documents is a detriment to faith. He is admitting that. So unless you've got this faith where you're like, look, I prayed about it in 1973. I felt this burning sensation in my bosom. The hair stood up on my neck. And I just know beyond a shadow of a doubt that these things are true. You're going to struggle with church history. It's a wood tool to tell people to wait. It's a wood tool to say like, yeah, it doesn't add up, but just have faith and you'll get answers. I've got way more questions, but I promise you this always works. I've got some answers, but I have a lot more questions, but you'll get answers and just wait and God will figure it out with you on the other side is one big giant wood hammer. It is useless in deciding the truth of Mormonism. Every advice piece he gave would work to a believing member of Islam, would work with a believing Methodist, would work with a believing Jew, would work with a believing Baptist, would work with a believing Scientologist, would work with a believing Jehovah's Witness. It works with everyone. Whatever faith you're in, just hold on tight, believe it with all your heart, even if the data doesn't add up. And if you do that, God will work it out on the other side. It never gives you any ability to actually navigate a problem in church history. It only begs you, as you point it out in the first episode, sit in the pews and wait and hope like hell there's a God on the other side who has an inclination towards Mormonism. Or like the South Park episode where the people all go to hell and Satan is saying who, what the true religion was. Have you ever seen that before? 
I haven't. I've watched South Park, not that episode in particular. Oh, it's, it's classic. You can watch it on YouTube where he's revealing the true religion. And he goes, the true religion is the Mormons. And everybody goes, dun, dun, dun. Everybody goes dang it. I thought it would be Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> so they're fried. Anyway, uh, I, have you said everything you wanted to say about that last clip from Stephen Harper, Bill? I am good. It. Uh, I mean, there's a lot more to say, but I'll just bite my tongue and, and just... I, I, let me say this. I will add this. You point out this wasn't nice. This, this is a nice guy, but what Mormonism does is it forces you to draw lines in the sand. Again... He cannot validate the person who leaves as having been an honest seeker of truth who followed where the actual data led them, and he couldn't honor that, and that, to me, breaks my heart. Mm. That's very, very, very poignant. Um, On something that's not quite so poignant and bringing the house back up, here we have the closing part from the interviewer, a very nice lady who apparently has no clue at all as to what it was that Stephen Harper was actually saying. Because she begins this interview in the opening clip the same way she ends it in the closing clip by saying that Stephen Harper has said that in the words of Lord Acton, his study of church history has been an illumination to his soul. Well, I don't know what interview she thinks she was participating in, but Stephen Harper said anything other than the fact that his study of church history has been an illumination to his soul. In fact, it has been something that has made him be tempted to throw it all away, as he basically confessed in the interview. So here's the outgo with this wonderful, chipper, perky interviewer who doesn't seem to be able to understand what it is that the person she was interviewing was actually saying. Certainly not all questions about church history can be answered in a short program, but hopefully you've heard some insights today that will help develop principles and habits that will be helpful as you continue your individual search. And hopefully those principles will continue to bring, as Lord Acton says, an illumination to your soul. I'm Amy Iverson. Thanks for joining us. Join us again next time for Gospel Solutions for Families. Okay, not to beat a dead horse, but as Amy says, you know, not all questions to church history can be dealt with in a short interview, but it's a 25-minute interview, Amy. Could you maybe have dealt with one? No, that was not on the menu. Instead, it's all these principles, it's sort of these ideas about how to deal with questions about church history, and they all boil down to Listen, say I don't know, and realize that Santa Claus doesn't exist, I don't want to burst your bubble, and continue to stay in the church, even though everything you're learning about church history teaches you that none of the magical, miraculous events in Mormonism upon which its entire authenticity and truth claims are based, that none of those ever happened. That's really what I heard Stephen Harper say in this interview. Yeah, how to answer questions about church history. And Stephen seems to make it clear that the number one key is simply don't use church history to resolve those questions, right? Like we've gone through, she's asked him a half dozen times to, to help uh, the listener to this episode use church history 
as they find questions within it, also to use church history to resolve those questions. Not once. Stephen Harper doesn't want church history to be part of someone's testimony because it's only going to hurt. Stephen Harper doesn't want to talk about church history because he didn't. Stephen Harper uh, doesn't want church history uh, to put across that church history resolves questions because he admits it doesn't. It provides only more questions and more questions and more questions and lesser and lesser answers. Stephen Harper, I like you, but what you said and didn't say here today seems like if someone's listening, which this lady obviously wasn't, because the last thing he said, no, the one thing he didn't say was that church history was an illumination to his soul. He admitted in and out that church history has been a detriment to his testimony and that only by maintaining blind faith or allowing yourself to believe in things that all other religions and their adherence uh, experience uh, allows one to continue and hope God fixes it on the other side. Yes, and frankly, I'm glad that Amy, Perky Amy, the interviewer, did not understand what it was that Steve was really saying. Otherwise, she'd probably go home and slit her wrists. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. This is Radio Free Mormon. <laughs> Signing off the air. <laughs> Mic drop. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took. But I do know that I love you. And I know that if you love me too. What a wonderful world this would be Don't know much about geography Don't know much trigonometry Don't know much about algebra Don't know what a slide rule is for But I do know what it one is to And if this one could be with you What a wonderful world this would be